so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Ayam Ibrahim, who's a professor of Islamic studies at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's the author of A Concise Guide to the Quran. Today, we talk about the nature of the Quran as well as the Islamic worldview. Dr. Ibrahim earned his PhD from Fuller Theological Seminary as well as a second PhD from Hafi University. He is the Bill and Connie Jenkins Professor of Islamic Studies and Director for the Center for Christian Understanding of Islam at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He was born and raised in Egypt and is taught in various countries in the Muslim world as well as in the West. His articles on Islam and Christian-Muslim relations have appeared in the Washington Post, Religion News Service, and First Thing, among others. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Ibrahim, thank you so much for joining me today on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, can you tell us a little bit about your background in growing up in Egypt and also some of your earliest encounters with the Quran? Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity, Jason. I was born and raised in Egypt. It's a Muslim-majority country. And all my friends were Muslim. Uh, a few were Christian, but the point is being in Egypt was so natural to connect with Muslims and to know about their worldview and especially the mindset of Egyptian Muslims. And just to grow up, had lots and lots of encounters with Muslims. Many of them remain uh, friends until today, I saw Muslims who came to Christ in Egypt. And so it's just a, a vivid memory. And that's where I grew up. And um, when I began my um, PhD, I was like, I want to study more about Islam and about the Islamic faith and about what Muslims do and what Muslims think. And that's how I end up working on uh, not only one, but two doctorates, PhDs uh, focusing on Islamic studies. Not that one is, is, is not enough, but the fact is I just love understanding more about Muslims and in, interacting with them. And that's why 
I wrote that book to help college students, master's students, lay people um, understand more about the uh, holy of holies of Islam, as we call it, the Quran, the, the sacred Islamic text. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I really enjoy about this volume is it is so accessible. You can hand this to a non-Muslim, you can hand this to a friend, a college student, even a family member who might be having some questions about the Quran. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast. This is just a dialogue about these things. Because as you say early on, a lot of Westerners don't have a lot of interaction with Muslims. Um, nor kind of understanding of the Quran in general. And so obviously you're incredibly widely published. I mean, you have numerous books. And this, I think, is one of the most accessible volumes you have as kind of an introduction to the Quran and asking some of these questions. And so early on in the book, you share that your goal with this volume specifically was to introduce non-Muslims to the Quran in that kind of accessible and easy-to-read format. So what prompted you specifically to write this volume? And what is why is understanding the Quran and by extension Islam in general crucial for those who are serving or working in the public square today? I go to church like most of your listeners go Sunday, every Sunday to church to worship. And I was thinking about my church, mem- the, the church members, many of them have the vaguest idea about the Quran, which is Islamic scripture. So I asked one time um, my neighbor um, here where I live, I told him, what do you think uh, the Quran is? What is the Quran? He said, isn't this the Bible of Muslims? (laughs) I thought this is a really good answer, but it's not really out of someone who read and learned. So I wanted to write a book that is accessible and that's scientifically honest. I wanted people to understand what the Quran really is and what is it what does it have inside and what it actually means for Muslims and I wanted to write this in an accessible way and and that's that's how I end up writing this book now um, you cannot deny the fact that now everywhere you go you will eventually meet a Muslim, okay? So the least I can do as a Christian, as an ambassador of Christ, is to be willing to understand what the sacred text this Muslim believes in means to this Muslim. So if we want to begin any kind of meaningful conversation with our Muslim neighbors, we should begin with what they value the most. And if this is something that I want to begin uh, by stating, that's one of the most important points that we have to make here. Muslims believe that the Quran is the eternal word of Allah. This is as we, we Christians believe in Jesus Christ. So. The point we have to recognize is that Muslims think of their Quran as Christians think of Jesus. Christians don't need to equate the Quran to the Bible. You can, but it's inaccurate. If you want to understand the way Muslims value 
their Quran, think of how you value the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what they, they believe about the Quran. That's why it is important for them that the Quran is shielded. Don't touch it. Don't question it. Don't ask critical questions about it. Well, scholars and the students will never stop asking critical questions, you know. And actually, I am answering 30 critical questions about the Quran. But the point is, I am asking these questions as a scholar, as an academic, but I also value and appreciate the way Muslims view their Quran. And I respect it, you know. However, when it comes to education, there is no limits for asking critical questions. And I think that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast is that you do engage it honestly. And I think that's something that we talk a lot about here on the podcast is honestly engaging our interlocutors, honestly engaging those in the public square and presenting their arguments in ways that they would understand and agree with, even if we differ, even if we come down on different places. You write in the book that the Quran is a mysterious book to many within the West. And a lot of our kind of exposure to Islam or to Muslim neighbors has come in light of the September 11th attacks, the tragedy of September 11th. And I think in especially in the West, a lot of our understanding has been shaped by that event. So can you tell us what is the Quran? I mean, we've talked a little bit about it so far, but what is the Quran? How is the text structured? And how does it compare, as you've talked about, with the place of the Bible in the Christian faith? The Quran, the bottom line, the Quran is the only scripture in Islam. We have other important texts in Islam like Muhammad's sayings, Muhammad's biography, and others, many other history of Islam and all this. But the only scripture in Islam is the Quran. In its size, it is two-thirds of a New Testament, okay? And it has 114 chapters. Each chapter is called Surah. Muslims value these, the word Surah because that's Arabic. And for Muslims, to understand the Quran properly, you need to read it in Arabic. That's uh, a frustrating statement for many non-Muslims because why not, especially if you think of the Bible translated in numerous translations. And that's actually, I think, a great advantage for Christians that the Bible is a translated, a translatable message. You know, you have this, but for Muslims, even when you have a Quran in English, that's not a Quran. This is a translation of the meaning. See how they value the Arabic Quran? So for them, there is so mysterious depth in the Arabic. Well, I am, as a critical scholar, I don't really buy this, but I appreciate what Muslims believe about their scripture. And the, the book itself is divided into these chapters, and each chapter has a verse has verses, and actually in, in the Quran, the verse uh, is numbered after the verse, unlike the Bible, okay? However, in every translation, it's actually following the same pattern as you do in the Bible. So you begin with the number and then followed by the verse. And there is a unique feature in, in, in the Quran that is really unique to the Quran. It switches topics quickly. 
So sometimes you are talking about stars and the moon and and then suddenly it talks about Moses is crossing the sea or something around these lines. What does this tell you? It tells that the context of the Quran is hard to grasp. That's why Muslims rely on numerous texts that existed centuries after the Quran to explain the Quran, which makes the Quran mysterious, a bit difficult to understand, even for someone like me, I read Arabic, that's my mother tongue, but it's it's really difficult at times. And in general, there are some Arabic words that no one knows what actually these words are about. So that's why the book itself is mysterious in that aspect, you know? Well, that's really helpful. You mentioned Muhammad and his place within the Islamic faith. Can you tell us a little bit about his role with the Quran and kind of his influence over the Quran itself? Excellent question. If we think of Islam as a religion that has two strong legs or foundations, it's the Quran and Muhammad. That's Islam, like that's Islam, okay? Now, Muhammad, for Muslims, is the messenger who received the message from Allah that is eventually became the book that we have today that is called the Quran. In 610, we are told that Muhammad was alone in a mountain in today's Mecca, and he received some revelations uh, through the angel Gabriel, and that became the first verse, the second verse, and throughout 23 years, he kept receiving these revelations. Eventually, these revelations became what we have today as a book called the Quran. Now, this is the traditional story. From a critical standpoint on from, or from a scholarly perspective, we have a lot of questions here, okay? But what do Muslims believe? That's what they believe. That's why if Islam is anything, it is a religious system that has two important elements. The word of Allah, that's the Quran, and the messenger of Allah, that is Muhammad. And one final point here that is very important for our audience. Muslims believe that the Quran is the literal, inerrant word of Allah that was never touched or corrupted throughout the centuries, the past 14 plus centuries since the inception of Islam. They believe that the book we have today in Arabic is the exact copy that Muhammad preached. That's the Muslim claim. What do scholars say? Well, we have lots to say, and I answer several questions about this. Yeah, and I think that's really helpful. And for listeners who want to dig in a little bit about that, you have numerous questions in the book, uh, kind of expanding on some of those kind of scholarly debates and uh, questions that people have. I think for many listeners, uh, they're aware of the Sunni-Shia divide within Islam. Can you give a little kind of brief high-level overview of this divide and how each view the Quran a little bit differently? Well, that's also another wonderful question, man. Yes, it's wonderful. So 
think of two major denominations in Islam. It's it's not as the denomination denominations in Christianity, but think of two major denominations. Uh, Sunni Muslims comprise around 85% of Muslims worldwide. That's why their voice is so loud and they have directions in terms of politics and they are the louder voice. But we have at least 13% of Muslims worldwide that are Shia. Now, when you ask Muslims, is there any big difference between Sunni and Shia? Usually the answer you hear is, no, no, no. Sunni and Shia are very fine. Both are fine and both are Muslims. And both are um, just believe the same thing. The difference is just political. Well, this is not that accurate. In fact, from a critical perspective, Shia Muslims and Sunni Muslims disagree on a significant aspect of the Quran as the sacred Muslim text. However, in public arena, they always say that, no, 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 we have the same Quran, but you listen to some Shia scholar talk about the Quran, they say stuff like, you know what? Sunni Muslims manipulated the texts of the Quran. They removed at least two chapters from the Quran that elevate the Imam, the major Shia leader, uh, or his legitimate succession of Muhammad. So what you hear outside is that there is no differences. But when you dig deeper and speak with them, you will hear the real stuff about, no, we have disagreements. And Sunni Muslims believe that the Shia Muslims are really not doing any favor to Islam because they are questioning the collection of the Quran. And yeah, so that's that's um, about the Sunni and Shia in general, you know. One of the things that's fascinating about some of this is understanding the complexity. I think often when we engage other people's worldviews or systems of belief, we often kind of take like a standard kind of broilerplate understanding and say, obviously, this is what all Muslims believe or this is what all Christians believe. Uh, this happens often in the public square, especially with the Christian faith is, oh, you all believe this. And when you get into the world, you understand there's a lot of complexity here. There's a lot of uh, questions. There's some differences. There's sometimes subtle. Sometimes they're very stark differences. And so obviously there's a lot that can be studied here. I mean, obviously you teach at Southern Seminary. You have multiple courses on this. Uh, you've done two PhDs. So obviously there's a lot of complexity here. What, what are some of the most important concepts from the Quran that you think are helpful, especially for Christians in the public square to understand some kind of important concepts or themes that we should understand about the Quran in general? Thank you. Wonderful question. Wonderful question. The most important concept in the Quran, according to Muslims, they will say it is the concept of, and listen here, that's an Arabic word, Tawheed. Tawheed. This word for Muslims means strict monotheism. Like it is the absolute oneness of Allah. That's in contrast to what Muslims believe that some Muslims believe that Christians worship three gods or all this, you know, which is inaccurate, of course. But they think of the Trinity as we Christians worship three gods. Now, in contrast to that, Muslims say that the most important aspect of the Quran is the Tawheed, 
the oneness of Allah. Now, the term itself is never found in the Quran. You cannot find this, which actually, like the Trinity, you don't find the Trinity in, in, in the Bible. But you can glean this, you can understand it through the text. And if you read the Quran, you will read several times, Allah is one, there is no other being besides him, and so forth. So, and actually this is a good point to connect with Muslims uh, with about this point, because whenever they say that Trinity is not mentioned in the Bible, yes, I understand, but the Tawheed is not mentioned in the Quran as well. <laughs> So, but the point is, Muslims believe that the major concept is the monotheistic, uh, like strict monotheism. In this understanding, Muslims are so proud. They actually call themselves, we are the people of Tawheed, strict monotheism. So this is how you would just uh, answer this question briefly, how they value the word strict monotheism, you know. Yeah, and you've mentioned a few times the reverence that Muslims have for the Quran in general as this sacred text. And you write about how most Muslims view skeptical questions or scholarly questions and inquiry as an attack against Islam as a whole. So can you share some of the ways that Muslims seek to honor the text itself and how we might best engage some of our friends or neighbors who are Muslim who may have that kind of reverence for the text itself? How can we honor them but also engage them in conversation? Man, I love that question. And it is one of the very important questions that we need to consider because when you read the Bible, you can underline the Bible, you can actually, if you get a phone call, you can put it aside. Some people would put it on the floor, you know. You don't feel like this is disrespectful because for you, the word of God is Jesus incarnate. Yes, I value the Bible. I appreciate, I actually approach it with awe because it's the word of God and he speaks through his word and, and so forth. So, but you won't feel you're disrespecting the, the, the incarnate word if you put it on your desk or if you put it in the floor next to you or on your chair. For Muslims, this is completely wrong. Muslims use the Quran in its book form as a supernatural power. They take the hold of the Quran and they kiss it. What? Yeah, they kiss it because for Muslims, the Quran as the inerrant, eternal word of Allah, it is so powerful. Some people put it underneath their pillow as they sleep so that they don't have bad dreams or nightmares. Some people put it at the front uh, of their shops uh, in the Middle East so that if any thief is breaking in and they see the Quran, they would feel, oh, I don't want to break the ear. So to understand what Muslims feel about the Quran, think of the word power. Sometimes they have a, a bottle of water and they read verses of the Quran at this bottle of the water and just read the verses so that the water becomes holy and they drink it and, and so forth. So the point is... The Quran for Muslims is power, supernatural power, metaphysical power. 
they revere it. Uh, actually, because it is very hard to understand, that adds to its divine nature. Does it make sense? So the point is, when we speak with Muslims, as Christians, I don't really need to respect any other book in, in any way, but I respect Muslims. So I need to understand the way they view their Quran, even though I don't have the same level of reverence or appreciation as they do, I value Muslims and, and actually because I love them, I will tell them some of my critical questions, you know. So if you do this with the Quran, have you ever considered, for example, the dispute between Shia and Sunni? What would you say? And, and so forth. And I ask several of these uh, questions to my Muslim friends, you know. So. No, I think that's really helpful, especially being able to approach people understanding their beliefs and understanding where they're coming from, and especially with Muslims having the reverence for the text, I think that's really helpful for us um, as we engage in the public square. And I think that's some of the biggest questions that we have as we zoom out from individual conversations to larger communities and societies, cities, and even nations in terms of the public square or even digital issues in terms of the digital public square, is there's a lot of questions about the place of Islam in the public square. Um, obviously, there's concepts of like Sharia law and there's negative connotations obviously surrounding that and kind of uh, understandings of the place of Muslim faith within the public square itself. And I think we start to see a lot of those questions, especially coming out of Europe, that has a growing Muslim population, especially in France. Um, and in France, we're seeing in the public square a lot of questions about a purely secular form of government, even though there's a significant portion and growing population of Muslims in France itself. So obviously, this is a pretty large and complex question. So I know we're not going to get to the depths of it here. But in general, how do Muslims see a, their role in, in kind of the diverse public square, even on questions such as like religious freedom? Obviously, religious freedom, especially as a Baptist, is incredibly important to the Christian faith. And even as I work here at the ERLC, we advocate for Muslims to be able to practice their faith in the public square because religious freedom isn't just for me, it's for all people of faith to be able to live faithfully to what their conscience is calling them to and how they should live that in public. And so what, from a Muslim perspective or an Islamic perspective, how do they view their role within the public square or even these ideas of religious freedom or uh, kind of diversity within the public square? This is a great question. Of course, it can have its own episode, okay? But I will try to be brief in responding here. Don't think of Muslims as a monolithic body of believers. Muslims are very, like, we can think of Muslims, just tentatively speaking, as three major groups or three main groups here. So the vast majority of Muslims are cultural Muslims, folk Islam, so why are they Muslim? Well, they were born in a Muslim family and they continued being Muslim. They don't really have a sophisticated approach to Islam or what the Quran really says. They, they basically follow the pattern of life around them and mostly what the mosque's imam leader says to them. The second group is the more religious Muslims, those who read the Quran, understand the majority of the Muslim teaching, and they try to live the life of 
a Muslim within a society, but they don't want to hurt anyone. Still, we need to have a third group, which by all means exists, which is extremist and radical. The problem with this group, although it is the tiniest group, it's very loud. And we hear about this, just the news, okay? That's uh, someone with a suicide bomb or like knife attack or all this, okay? And they are loud, but they are the tiniest minority among Muslims. All these, like these three categories of Muslims approach questions differently. So you're now asking about religious freedom. How would this topic be approached by these three groups? Number one, the cultural Muslims most likely, of course, what I didn't think about this, but what does the Imam say in the mosque? And they would follow it. Or they would say, no, no, no. Islam is already good with every human being. And just so they practice Islam within the cultural norms of the day without sophistication in terms of what does the Quran really say? What does Muhammad's saying, uh, the collections, what do they say about, about religious freedom? They don't really care about it. Now, the second group will have opinion, okay? But most likely they will follow the opinion that would make them part of their society. So, for example, you would find Muslims in America here very much advocating religious freedom. What is this? Is it based on a sacred text? Is it based on a command in the Quran or Muhammad sayings or whatever? Not really. It, it's more because they are responding to charges against Islam and they want to, to have Islam, an Islam that fits today's norms. But they do some kind of hermeneutics. They say, okay, there are some texts that are seemingly against religious freedom, but we can contextualize it. Now, the third group, the final group, they don't want to be political, po politically correct. <laughs> they don't care about political correctness. They want to be theologically correct. So they stick to the letter of the text and they want to apply it. And that's the group where you hear often, yeah, no, if one changes their religion, they want to abandon Islam, we kill him, and so forth. So I hope in this brief exploration in these three categories, I explained uh, that big topic. Yeah, and that's really helpful, I think, because often, as I said earlier, when we approach topics that we're unfamiliar with in the public square, and this isn't just Islam in general, this is any kind of worldview or any set of beliefs, we often have kind of overly simplistic kind of explanations and understandings. I think what you're doing is showing there's a lot of complexity here. Uh, this isn't a monolithic group who all think the exact same things, very similar to Christianity. There are various perspectives, even on religious freedom or engagement in the public square or public theology or social ethics, for example, within the Christian faith. And so there's some differing perspectives. And I think that's really helpful is what you're saying is similarly in, in Islam is that there are these three main groups who kind of would approach these type of questions a little bit differently. Well, as we kind of end our time together, I want to kind of ask you a little bit bigger question. So one of the things that you write in the book is that Muslims are often surprised when they meet a non-Muslim who's actually read the Quran. 
So you provide within the book some helpful tools, understanding the Quran and its structure. What would you recommend in terms of resources or even translations of the Quran itself? Like what kind of resources would you recommend outside of obviously your uh, kind of library that you've written yourself in this particular volume that's so helpful? What would you recommend for folks if they wanted to dig a little bit deeper into some of these ideas or kind of tools and resources to dig deeper into the Quran itself? If any of your audience is able to take any course at Southern Seminary, we offer nine different courses on Islam. I don't think there is any evangelical school or even just a school that has that different set like of courses, including Arabic, we teach Arabic here. Now, I think a good place to start is the websites that I provided in the book where you can do your own research in Islamic studies. So, for example, in one of the chapters, I offered some hints about one website that has 10 different translations of the Quran, another website that has a modern translation of the Quran, another website that has the sayings of Muhammad. So if you want to know what Muhammad said about love, about jihad, about um, neighbor, about whatever, just put the word and, Google and, and, and search in that website. Now, so... I think that's a good start. Coming uh, soon is the second volume after this a Concise Guide of the Quran, which is on Muhammad's life. It's coming also with Baker. So that will be an additional resource to help our audience understand more about the life of Islam's um, prophet. And, you know, we can, this, I hope it's helpful. But other than this, I encourage your audience to speak with Muslims and to read what the scripture of Islam says and to go to Muslims and ask them, have you thought about this? And just be genuine, be honest, ask sincere questions. And um, don't forget that we don't only ask questions, we also provide the good news that God gave in our Lord Jesus Christ to the humanity, to humankind. And yeah, I think that's uh, that can be a good start. <laughs> yeah, that's really helpful. And we'll make sure for listeners' sake to link some of those resources that you mentioned in the book, as well as some of the books that you've written yourself, including hopefully uh, that next volume, kind of companion guide to this volume, hopefully is available for pre-order. So hopefully uh, we'll be able to link to that and for folks to be able to grab those. Well, Dr. Ibrahim, I just want to thank you. One, thank you for this conversation. It's been really thrilling. It's been really encouraging to me. I echo what you're saying about the work that Southern Seminary is doing, especially through the the Center for Islamic Studies and Islamic Understanding there at Southern. I was encouraged when I was doing my master's program at Southern, I actually ended up taking a couple different Islamic courses before your time there. But I know I've very much benefited from and just kind of understanding some of the complexity and the nuance and actually reading some of these texts was very beneficial to me, especially as I engage uh, my Muslim friends and Muslim neighbors and kind of understand the role of Islam in the public square, not only here domestically, but also internationally. So thank you so much for joining us here on the Digital Public Square. It was a joy to have you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. I enjoyed it very much. God bless you and God bless your audience.
Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing, as well as to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Ibrahim and learn more about his new book, as well as the recommended resources that he mentioned in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology in our day, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week. Thank you.